how does someone who is working on test automation or CI tools doing exploratory testing, how do they become a tester in the sense of experimentation? How do they become someone who administers experiments to customers? Welcome to AB Testing Podcast, your modern testing podcast. Your hosts, Alan and Brent, will be here to guide you through topics on testing, leadership, to the AB Agile, testing podcast. and anything this is else Alan that comes to mind. Now, and, uh, on the with the show. Today. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, we should do that. It's AB Testing, the Yacht Rock version. Next up, Steely Dan. So we have been, uh, we are going to have a shorter podcast today, one, because I have a hard cutoff, and two, because I have been struggling with the non-sponsored, so I can talk about them however I feel like, uh, Zencaster, which uh, has been mean and grody today. So let me talk about my user experience here. Because I'm that, I, do I want to be that guy? I'm going to be that guy briefly. Logged on, new interface, couldn't figure out where to go. Finally started an episode, took me to a blank screen, refreshed about 10 times, restarted. Finally, I got to a place and it kind of worked and my audio is not great on Brent's side. Hopefully the local recording works. And then I pressed start the episode, it refreshed again, and then and then it, it restarted again. And finally, we're here recording, and we're here for the A-B Testing Podcast, which is about testing, and it is modern. Right. <laughs> Unless you're just listening to this episode, not the one before, and you're very confused, because <laughs> that's kind of what we do. So um, I got a thing to tell you about the last episode and what I've, been, what I've done since then, but what's going on with you, Mr. Brent Jensen, a.k.a. a.k.a. El Queso Frito. Yes. Do you know what that means? It means uh, cheese fry. The fried cheese. Either way. <laughs> uh, it's it's an old joke between me and my brother. We've always felt that El Queso Frito sounds like a superhero name. If there was a superhero made out of fried cheese, that would be you. <laughs> El Queso Frito. Um uh, what did you ask me? Oh yeah, so school school's back from summer. It's interesting in terms of the Microsoft hybridization report. Wait, what is the Microsoft hybridization report? This is where I report out on the work from home. Hybridization? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that hybridization. <laughs> yes. As you know, I am sitting in my office. I do know. And and Microsoft opened up at the end of last March, at which point in time we went from five cars consistently in the parking lot, of which mine was 20%, uh, to maybe 20 cars. And now I would say we're closer to 40, 50. I mean, still plenty of empty parking spots. Yeah, I remember the days of, I, I know what building you're in. I remember the days of walking around that parking lot and not walking, driving around in circles and going, damn it, I'm going to have to park farther away. Oh, yeah. No, no. It, it, the Before COVID, I've had to, if if I got in after nine, I wouldn't even try going to my building because I had already learned, nope, I'm just going to go park in the big garage in the commons. 
I, can you share the the not the details? What's what's the high level? What is what is the hybridization mean? We're at a stage where some people go to work and some don't. And we're good with that. Microsoft's open for working from work, but people can choose it. So we have a survey. Same. All right. But what's happened is this week, uh, I would say. Uh, there's been an increase between 30 and 50% of cars. There's still plenty of open parking spots. But why do you think that is this week? Uh, because summer end and. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I think a lot of people just made a decision. Uh, we'll just stay working from home while the while kids out for summer. Yeah, I was in the office a couple of days this week, uh, three days, matter of fact, and we're still not, we're still looking sparse. So we're open for business, but yeah. Yeah, there's one thing that's fascinating, though. So because of this, Microsoft kind of put a halt on building. Uh, they have a whole bunch of new buildings that they're working through, but they put a halt on trying to find new space. And before COVID, we were having a problem. Same. Uh, be- Same. Before COVID, we were having a problem because we were running out of space. And we're like, where are we going to put all these people? And so now what's happening, It's it's... It's messed up. So if you remember, there used to be like seniority rules around who gets the window office, who gets singled, who gets doubled, crap like that. So now it's seniority rules are still in play around who gets an office without regard as to whether or not those people are coming in. Right. So that's a weird thing about Microsoft. I think I got to imagine your building is still a little bit of the minority of overall, maybe not, but in the rest of the industry, I think individual offices don't exist that much. So hot desking is a little easier and just, you know, just uh, showing up and and we have a system for reserving desks and I figure out where where I want to work. When I get tired of that place, I move around, but actually I'm in a good spot now because it's close to little lockers where I keep my, my uh, Bluetooth keyboard and mouse. So um, yeah, just kind of works. So with offices, it's kind of weird. If you're going to have like, it's like you're there all the time. So it makes sense. You keep stuff in there and you go there every day. But if you're going in once or twice a week, are you saying those people have offices too? Like permanent? They, they do and they don't depending on, on the person. So, so for example, we have a bunch of new hires um, and right now, it, it, this is one of those things where I just like, okay, is it just humanly the default that we never go back and revisit old rules? We just add new rules, right? It's like it, you could make your life easier if you take this existing rule and delete it. Right. So we're keeping alive the, the seniority rule, but because that requires, that makes us out of space, then new hires, the rule is you don't get an office. Even though you want to come in, you know, eight eight days a week. Uh, and I'm like, this is dumb. Yeah, it is dumb. This is dumb. I will tell you, we don't need all of our listeners, even all of them, because they're all smarter than us. They know this is dumb. Yes. So I guess one of the things that's new for me is it's, um, so because of this, I have actually for for my organization taken over the move map multiple years in a row. And 
uh, just last week, I put my final touches on an AI for defining the move map. I've been wanting to oh build my. this for years, and I finally did it because uh, it's it's way smarter than the decisions we've been making. All right, I'll I'll trust you. I'll trust you. It's going to work out. So that's interesting. I think a lot of companies are in that uh, space that people like I can tell you, I think this is probably fair to tell you that we have some offices that are basically full, not on the West Coast. Uh, West Coast of the U.S. has been the slowest to return to office. Um, Full and occupied? Full. Well, not full. Occupied like at 80 percent. So pretty occupied. Yeah. Uh, okay. A lot of our offices, like we don't have a single office that will hold all the people associated with that office. Like in, you know, we have an office that holds 200 people. For example, we may have our internal employee database may show 350 people associated with that office. But uh, we think we have quite a while before we'll ever reach a capacity where everybody can find a desk. So we have also slowed down, I guess, some projects that were in process in 2019 stopped and remain stopped and we're not even filling most of the space we have now. So anyway, yeah. I think that's pretty common for everyone else. Um, I, I do want to talk about AB testing. Okay. Do you at all have any interest in talking about her majesty, the queen? Oh, just that. I mean, I do. Cause I have, a, I have a lot of uh, Brits on my team and it's, it's it's kind of like uh, when you have a we will a little bit so kind of like when you have an, uh, a family member who you maybe know they're about to pass soon and or they will pass sometime in the next year or two sometime but when they do it's still kind of shocking in a way and I think that's where a lot of folks are right now I mean she was queen for seventy years our condolences and it's going to be weird because. As long as we've been alive and much, much longer, there has been a Queen of England. It's uh, it's a little trippy. Right. There's multiple generations of literally there are multiple generations like her. She reigned for 76 years. I no, mean, I thought it was 70, right? She was she was queen since she was 26 and she died at 96. Oh, 70 years then. Right, that's if I have that right, and someone, one of our listeners, will correct me because people know more stuff than I do all the time. Yeah, I'm trying to. It's fascinating, and I'm wondering. Like, I find the whole thing fascinating just simply because I'm just like, okay, number one, why are is there still monarchies? That whole that whole concept, right? There's still an emperor of Japan. It's not. It's not a monarchy in the sense of um, an autocrat or an authoritarian or a dictator. Right, right. And then the, the there, new... There is a political system in both cases that supports... Right. And and the thing that's fascinating, right, the, the new king of England is 73. Right. Right. And, and, and I, I just... It, it, that's, that's good, solid blood, man. He'll be, he'll be alive longer than I will. Yeah, uh, he'd definitely be alive longer than me, most likely. All right. Uh, A-B testing. A-B testing, or as it's sometimes called, ab testing. Uh, we're going to be uh, sending out some uh, self-assessments where you do as many sit-ups and uh, leg raises as you can. It's part of the ab testing network. Oh, wait. Th- I'm sorry. That that's 
that's later. That's a later evolution of A-B testing. You just have to be able to do at least as many as I can. Yeah, that's one. That's zero. Last time on the podcast, we talked about A slash B testing or experimentation. So we had a little talk about that and, and about this article. And I actually... Right. And how did that go? I don't think it's been played yet. I recorded the talk that we talked about me making last time. And it went, I, I think it went well. I can, um, if this, if we had screen sharing, I'd show you my slides, but uh, we probably do. I just don't want to turn it on. It was pretty much a recap. I talked a little bit about where I came from. I talked about, okay, I did this kind of testing at first where I explored stuff. A lot of people do that today. That's cool. Um, there'd probably always be need for that on some teams, but it's going away. And then I did a bunch of API testing, uh, both, you know, things that would be at the unit level today and wider, some diagnostic tools. Uh, those things live 90 to 100% in the lives, in, in developers. So I'm not really going to do that again. That's somebody else's job. And then I talked about um, accelerating test teams, accelerating teams through CI systems. And that's another role um, that, that accelerates quality. But then I said, but another kind of testing I want to do is, and I, I talked about experimentation first, um, went into A-B testing and talked about the fact that in those scenarios, the tester is the person that doesn't check inputs and put in values. The tester is the person that administers the A-B test. And talked a little bit about that, how to learn more. I mentioned uh, Ronnie Kawavi's book. You remember Ronnie from Microsoft. Pretty good, smart mind in this area. And tells has lots of good stories and stuff I've stolen over the years. So good stuff there. And it's, it's a 14-minute talk, so not a lot there, but... At the end, I'm sure it's a twist that'll piss people off. But then, but then, but then, but then, you probably didn't see my five for Friday today, did you? No, I haven't seen that yet. You can bring it up while I talk if you want. But one of the links now, I think link number four, is believe it or not, I came across an article. I do believe it. That said how your QA team can use A-B testing. And it was talking about using the QA team to, to administer experiments. I thought, huh. There's always someone smarter and ahead of me out there. Yeah, no, I don't view our job on this podcast as to invent new things. No, we never do. We never do. We highlight what's already happening, even if we don't know it's already happening. And then try to accelerate it. Yes, yes. So I did that. I'm going to write the article based on that sometime soon. But uh, I was thinking... My question for you is, this, this recording, I didn't record it just to you know, anger people, even though I'm sure it's going to get a couple of reactions like, what? I don't get this. Why is this here? Alan, you're so stuck in the bubble kind of thing. So what do you think if you were, let's say, imagine you were the tester you were 20 years ago, because that's probably um, at least a chunk of the people watching this talk. Okay. But you have an open mind and you love to learn. Well, what do you think when you see this talk that goes, okay, that kind of testing I know, that kind of testing I know. I've, I know people that do DevOps stuff and acceleration. That's good. That's good. You want me to what? If I were the tester 20 years ago, but in today's context, I assume, I think I would be worried, obviously. Right. I don't know what the value proposition I'm giving up. Like, what are we losing? That's where people are going to freak out. Well, and, and, and here's where I think I can help you. I think what's different is kind of a little bit rhetorical. 
as you and I both know, there are some testers who are, uh, we'll, we'll dig in their heels a little bit on this is the kind of testing I do. I think that's fine. You can do as you want. I'm not going to tell you to do something you're not doing as long as you're gainfully employed and happy and learning and feel like your job matters. Autonomy, mastery, and purpose, just go for it. But you're going to have to leave that behind. Uh, there's a, As you know, there's a lot of testers who do exploratory testing all day. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not what we're talking about. There's a lot of testers who build uh, who do a whole day doing Selenium testing to automate UI. There's, uh, you know, it's, that's fine. That's, I don't consider that my job anymore. I'm not, not going to stop it. So you'd have to leave those things behind in order to focus on experimentation. Right, right. right. The, if, if we think about the, what were the principles, why did we write the principles of, of modern testing? Right, we wrote them essentially because we saw people didn't have a clear road path to to get to the world we were already living in. Right. We saw, yeah, exactly. There were people, we, we saw the changes happening. We saw people struggling with those changes. We wanted to help them navigate those changes. And we've been doing that for five, six years. What we're doing now is saying there's a new place that we're kind of already living but there's a new place maybe we're going and we want to talk to you about how to navigate. We want to talk to you how to navigate that. Right. So, so the, the place we're talking about is okay. Right. If we were to sum up, if we were to sum up MTP and, 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 in less than seven principles, right. We're basically saying, Hey, it's a new world. Uh, your expertise is valuable, but it's valuable in terms of transitioning, helping to transition dev to actually doing their job, coaching and and increasing or accelerating the team, right? But a pivot is around coaching. Now the question, of course, and and we started talking about this, and right now I can't believe this is the first time I'm thinking these thoughts. Okay. Once it's ingrained in the culture of how to do this and coaching isn't needed, what then? Right? And and that's what we're, I think, we're going into or the, the path that we're discussing. Maybe. But I think what's different, though, is moving from tester to test developer. It's just a shift. It's not a big thing. Moving from that into uh, coaching or into working on CI systems, not that big of a change. The change we're talking about here, moving from, it isn't a progression, moving from any one of those, I'll call them all traditional testing or checking roles, into an experimentation role, I think is a much bigger jump than any of the others we've talked about. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. So that's the thing I, you know, I'd like to explore a little bit today then in future episodes is how does someone who is a, well, I have answers for these. We can talk about it a little bit. How does someone who is working on test automation or CI tools doing exploratory testing, how do they become a tester in the sense of experimentation? How do they become someone who administers experiments to customers? A little bit of a yet another, again, principle five rant is people get mad at principle five because they say, you just want the customers to test your software. And the thing is, yes, we do, but not in the sense that you're thinking of. You know, you know what I mean, but I'm going to I'm going to expand. We don't want the customers to test our software to find functional correctness. If you give test if you give 
your customers something that isn't functionally correct for them to discover, you're a crappy developer. That's not the goal. Yeah, we're not talking about code correct. Yeah, right, exactly. But we do want customers to test our software. We want them to test to see if the treatment or the experiment we are proposing to them is a better experience than the one that the control group or everyone else is getting. We do want them to test our software. If someone were to come to me and today say, oh, I think principle number five is bullshit because you guys just want your customers to test the software. My response would be yes. and But specifically, it would be yes. For me to evaluate the quality of my software, I absolutely need my customers to use it, right? Because what I'm trying to do there is, is look, I do not expect my customers to encounter co-correctness issues. That is dev's job. Dev's job now. Okay, sorry, dev's job. But whether or not my software has quality has nothing to do with, in my view, with code correctness. It has some things to do with code correctness. But what I'm now trying to understand is to what degree this is valuable, this is useful, this is adding improvements to my customer's life. And that is the definition of quality that I care about. And if my customers aren't using it, then either I have crap or I have a, a another problem because I cannot validate that hypothesis without usage. Yes. The more I've thought about it, this is the biggest hurdle the traditional tester has to get over, understanding that you actually do need customers to test your software to know if it's quality software. And and again, words, as, as some of our colleagues in the industry will say, words have meanings. And the meanings for the words I spoke and the meanings that are maybe more traditionally or commonly used do not match. I want my customers to test my software. I just, I won't repeat myself, but they need to. But when people hear that, they think of another kind of testing that's not, actually, what's weird is they, we want to, because I'll use testing and checking, not not mocking in this case. If you want to use those um, those terms from uh, Bach and Bolton is, you don't want customers to air quote check your software, but you do want them to test your software. I don't know. And actually, that's not quite right because then I'm using their definition for check, but our definition for test. So it doesn't quite work. I am reminded of one of my first presentations I did in Bing, right? Because I I, uh, I paid attention to what was going on in Bing. When I joined Bing, as you know, we were getting rid of tests, but there were still tests. There were still small pockets of tests there, including test managers. And and so I saw what they did and I had my test manager hat on and I was just amazed. Right. The one of the ways I started off that slide deck, as I said, here's something that is just incredibly cool about Bing every single day there were 600 million test cases being done. And not only that, there was no way to argue, even with the duplicate test cases being executed, 
there was no way to argue that those were anything other than the important test cases for that day. Because those were the ones being done by the customer. Aha. Uh-huh. Right. And, and then if you combine it with this intelligence that early on, right, I, I truly believe this is why in the early search um, search wars, why Google won. Because they realized it's okay to ship bugs. What is what we need to do is prioritize our resources around those things that are impactful. So Google mastered the art of shipping bugs and then looking at which ones were high impact. Obviously, they couldn't ship anything that would be catastrophic. They couldn't have outages. Or or blocking little things. It helps you figure out which bugs matter. How many times have you seen in a blog post or a presentation someone showing the convoluted way in which they exposed a bug that nobody cares about? <laughs> so I think I, about I uh, I think about one of the first bugs. As you know, my career is long, and every day the time I spent as an IC as a percentile incredibly shrinks, right? I spent, I think, a total of nine months as a full-time IC in in the company. But one of my bugs was so freaking convoluted, instead of having the P, the PN did the triage, and instead of having them go through and figure out what the hell happened, he just won't fix it and then called it the Brent Beep. Because what happened is I found these weird, like, 30 random steps and then it would suddenly beep for no reason. No, oh, the Brent beep. Yeah, that's famous. yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, he's like, "Yep, this is the Brent beep." We and and he reframed it as an Easter egg. There you go, Brent. You can be proud. You you spent the effort. You found this issue, and then I just sit back and I go, I think about the Brent beep and go, "How much time did I waste on that stupid freaking bug?" Happens all the time, though. It's a little bit of a rite of passage, but. I would argue, though, there is learning that happened there. You learn how to explore. There's, It's more of an exercise than a value to the customer. So there is value to you, but not to the customer. That would help your growth, but really did nothing for the customer. Uh, now, I remember this particular thing. This bug did, this bug did not help me in any way, shape, or form. It, it just, it might have helped me, uh, I'm trying to recall, was I under a bug quota during that that time it might have helped me you know not get yelled at uh, uh that week i let's go back to old style testing because now i want to tell a different story nothing to do with yeah. what we're talking about with the customer but uh when i first started at microsoft i did have a bug quota i was expected to find 10 bugs a week and i was told that it was windows 95 there were plenty of bugs and i was doing networking so plenty of bugs and i had cool ideas they don't have to all get fixed just bugs and the manager would kind of spot check them and make sure you weren't being stupid. People would do silly things like open up uh, often sometimes as dumb as seeing an unlocalized string in Japanese and also opening up the unlocalized string in Chinese and Korean. But I would report, I would find 10, actually I would report 10 or 11 bugs every week, sometimes 12 because I wanted to overachieve a little bit, but some weeks I find about 20, 25, 30, but I would save them for the next week in case my well dried which is a horrible behavior. I hate bug quotas are dumb. But one of the bugs I found with me goofing around was I was uh, working on 
uh, localized, uh, uh, far east localized versions of Windows 95, which was a mixed byte character system. So all kinds of cool stuff could happen because the backslash could be the the 5C character could be the second half of a double of a double byte character. So I would do all kinds of weird network tests between NetWare and and NT and Japanese NT and Japanese NetWare, just copying a bunch of files around with weird names to see what would happen. And uh, at the time, I didn't realize how cool this bug was, but I was running my test and it hung. It just stopped. I said, shoot. So I walked down the hall to the lab where the machine was. It was an NT, NT machine. Must have been 3.5 at the time. And the machine had blue screened. I thought, well, that's stupid. I mean, they blue screened all the time. So I, I rebooted it, got it back up, went back in my office, ran the test again. And my test hung again. I walked down to the down to the lab and I looked at the machine and rebooted it and went back to my office. Okay, coincidence. It's got to be a coincidence, right? Because these are, and then it's like 50 yards away. I have to walk all, other part of the building. I run the, t- I start the test and I, and I, and I kind of jog down to the lab, open the door, you know, I think it was a number key on there. I get in there, look at the machine and I watch it just blue screen right in front of me. I said, cool. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> this is like a superpower. And at a, probably out of all the bugs I found I was testing from Windows 95, but uh, that bug on NT got fixed faster than any of my Win95 bugs. So did you find a a way to corrupt memory? No, I, I you know what? This is 30 years ago, so I don't remember what happened. I just know that because uh, what would happen with these what I was hinting at before with these mixed byte character sets. If anything in the network stack would parse those as single bytes rather than characters, it could screw something up and do something unexpected. So the blue screen was an unexpected behavior of a, of a poorly parsed uh, mixed byte string. Okay. Interesting. So you don't want your customers finding that one. Uh, no. But it's kind of an edge case. So maybe devs may not find it. But the moment you see that crash, you got to be able to debug it, figure it out, and get patches in. Which reminds me of... Do you remember years ago, they may still have something like this. Again, learning from the customer, SQL had this, it's called like a no repro policy or something, meaning when they got a crash report from a customer, they wanted to be able to have the logs in order to figure out exactly what went on and fixed it. They didn't want to set up a, they didn't want to set up repros anymore. And anytime you had to set up a, a reproduction environment in order to isolate the bug and fix it. Uh, part of fixing it was adding all the logging. So if anything like it ever happened again, uh, you could figure out what went wrong. Right. Um, I guess a good way to use customer crash data. Use it to make your processes faster. And then here we are today, 25 years later. I forgot about the days of doing repros. I know it's so far ago. I don't like, I don't, um, this is one place where going back to when I went to one, when I went to Bing, right, um, I joined about a year after one of the best testers in terms of like the tester mindset and all that. He had joined and he's like, he saw that I was there and he's like, oh, Brent, I, I wish you had told me before you come. This place is horrible. The issue was he was just phenomenal at finding bugs, but bugs didn't matter in Bing. Because there was so many different things that were happening every single second that literally, and I, I think even right now, you type, you go to Bing, you type a query, and 
you take a snapshot and you hit refresh and take another snapshot, you'll see that there is a big difference between the snapshot, no matter how often you hit refresh or how quickly you hit refresh. Because we have new data coming in, we have a we have a very smart AI that's making new decisions, and so he'd find he'd find bugs, but then they were completely non-reproducible, and so in this case, it was frustrating with him or for him because the thing that he had to do, the thing that was valuable, is what's the pattern. Right. He couldn't just say what's occurring. He, he had to, in some way, shape, or form, explain why is this, is it occurring. He had also been one of those, one of those testers that said, I am never going to learn the code. And so he felt stuck. Oh. And I I I advised him and I said, Look, my life is easier because I I do know how to code on this front. But I don't see a reason right now for you to let go of that principle. You just have to learn a new trick. You can't rely on your old trick all by itself. Like, you are a a brilliant tester. You are able to connect dots between the systems. Now you're going to have to figure out how to do that from a strategic sense, not just a pure tactical sense. And he understood, but he did not find any way to do that. And I don't even think he's at the company anymore. All right, man. So, um, yeah. So what I want to get into next time when we chat is kind of how people can get in, like how does someone get into experimentation and what skills from testing help with that? What's going to be hard to learn? How do you learn those things? Uh, What does that mean for the folks you work with? Obviously, you can't just decide as a tester that you want to do experimentation and have nobody around you to help you. So let's talk through that next time. A little bit of a shorter podcast this time to kind of kick things off because Zencaster was mean to me today and I have a hard stop at uh, about two minutes ago. So uh, good catching up. It was good reminiscing a little bit. And thank you everyone for listening. Have a great time. Stay safe. Uh, God bless the queen. And we'll talk to you soon. I'm Alan. I'm Brent. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.